Please remain standing for the reading of God's word in our passage in Hebrews. We already have said the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It was Crocodile Dundee who, when he came to New York, was mugged, and he said, you call that a knife? And he pulled out his, and he said, this is a knife. I left my Bible with large print at home. You call this a Bible? This. This is the sword of the Lord. John chapter 4. Beginning in verse 27. dropped some of my stuff here. There it is, hidden under this big Bible. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman, but no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. In the previous message, we looked at the next part of this uh, passage where the disciples were materializing everything. They were thinking about physical food, and Jesus was so excited about this conversation with the The woman at the well, he was feeding on spiritual food. What filled his soul was God's work in her life. So we won't cover that portion again. Move with me down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would lead us as you led this woman at the well to her deepest need. And let us realize that you know everything about us. Nothing can be hidden from you. And yet you love us, not with a permissive love, not with a license to sin, but with a redeeming and transforming love that will never leave us the same. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Tonight we do have our Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, We will gather for a a, a great meal. Uh, Marty said he cooked two turkeys and everybody else knows how to cook turkeys. Mary said she's going to put a sign by the one that I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take responsibility for this. And after I'm sure it's overcooked, she said, I'm going to put a sign, Harry baked this turkey. (laughs) I have no clue how it's turned out. We'll carve it up this afternoon, but I'm afraid it's set in the oven too long. After that, we're going to gather together, and whatever the meal, we're going to have an open mic, and we're going to give thanks to God. Now, we ought to thank God for
for all of his blessings to us. But not only for his blessings, what we perceive as here and now blessings. But if we can't thank God for the blessings, then where, where do we start? If we're not grateful for those, how callous we are. So I was thinking about this and coming up to uh, this 38th Thanksgiving uh, that we, uh, that Mary and I have, have been here, raised our children here, all the process. I thought about what God has done from when we first came. We had no land. We had no building. We had no elders. We had no deacons. We had, we had everything we have is potential and possibility. But we had no clue either whether God would bless and establish his church. We knew we were utterly dependent upon him to do it. And yet how many of you were thinking as you were coming in to worship of the marvelous things God has done to provide this land and this, the resources to get it, to provide for this building and the, the place of worship? We weren't thinking of those things. I was thinking about them just because, I'm one, I'm thinking overview and just realizing what a blessing that we have this place to worship. And this was God's work. The first building we had had a a parking lot out in front and just the hallway with a few classrooms off on uh, either side. And that cost us, I I think, around the the 300 and something thousand dollars uh, to to build. The county gave us uh, permission. We were not up to code with the gravel parking lot. They gave us permission to go ahead and get in. We got in with metal chairs, no carpet on the floor. It was, it was literally worship in a warehouse. Those of you that were here, remember, and we were praising God for it. The fresh blessing we praise God for. Then we began to take it for granted. The next stage, we built the classrooms going out to the front end of the county, said, well, now you've been grandfathered in with this uh, uh, gravel parking lot. Now you have to do your site work. And the site work, I think, cost something like or even more than the original building just to do the site work. We ended up uh, borrowing like $1.2 or $3 million to build the second stage. We sold bonds to people in the church for 9% interest. Remember those days? Any of those of you who have savings say, oh, those are the good old days, right? But interest rates were high if you're saving We had an escalating mortgage for three years. We were barely able to afford the first year. We had to grow, had to grow in giving to be able to not go belly up. It was make or break time. It was live out there on the limb. We didn't know for sure what God would do, but it was was make or break time. Either we would not be able to continue. We were already beginning to stumble uh, over ourselves with the facilities uh, we had or God was going to bless. And sure enough, we were able to grow and pay that mortgage and then pay it off and after a few years. And we were able to do other building things. We have this place, this a great place of worship. I'm just reminding you as a church family of what's gone before you that we give thanks to God that we're even able to be here. Because he did it, we didn't do it. I cannot take the time to recount how impossible so many things seemed. And then it happened. But you're thinking, churches always have stories like that. doesn't really help people. Why are you all about building? Well, I, I could do the same thing in my own personal life. We've had a number of the ups and downs uh, in life with things. We've had the times where cancer was, was a threat. 
but then by God's grace, it was it was uh, passed. It was there was relief there, and then that one time that it happened, and then it happened that it looked like it was a very serious kind. And you know, remember the walking up and down the steps of our house, thinking, hmm, I don't know what the future is going to look like. And then God was was gracious and and lifted us from the most threatening kind to where it was it was better now we can praise god for the blessings and we should my point is this though if we only praise god for the blessings then when you come back tonight you're thinking has god blessed me and it can go down kind of obnoxiously when somebody gets up and and says i praise god for my wonderful marriage if you're struggling in yours I praise God for all the blessings that he relieved us from the, from the cancer when you're, when you're facing it in your life. I praise you know, God for, for this job. This, I was in trouble and he, he gave me this job. And, but you're still stuck in that circumstance. You see, when we only praise God for what we would call the blessings of life, it divides us, doesn't it? Our praise for God has to go deeper because when we only praise God for the blessings... We are just like what Satan thought of Job. Satan accused Job before God and said, He doesn't love you. He loves you for your blessings. You take your blessings away. You take his provision away. You take his family away. You take his health away. And he will curse you. And God said, Go ahead. Make my day. He didn't say that in the, in the Bible, but, but it's sort of like that because he knew Job's heart. And when Job's blessings were taken away, he still praised God. Yes, he wrestled with God chapter after chapter, and it's okay for us to wrestle with God. But in the end, when God said, it's not for me to have to give account to you, just trust me, Job did. And there was a redeeming saving grace of God at work in Job's life where he praised God not just for his blessings but for God's love and grace. This is the subject of our chapter here in this uh, chapter of John. This is our fourth in our series on the woman at the well and even there I feel like I'm just flying by just giving it a cursory study because this is Lloyd-Jones book of 50-something sermons on John chapter 4. And there's no way that I could give it to you the way Lord Jones can. He is a great among the greats. I just whet your appetite if you want to read further. Living Water, Studies in John by Martin Lord Jones. But this is our fourth, and it's the capstone when the woman bears testimony to Jesus saying, he told me everything I ever did. Why is that amazing? The disciples come back in verse 27. They're surprised to find Jesus talking with a woman in Samaria. That's the context of it all. But no one asked, what do you want? Why are you talking with her? The disciples were disciples. They had a reverence for Christ. It's kind of an interesting dynamic to think about where they would talk among themselves about who's the greatest or why is he doing this? But they were afraid to talk to Jesus. Does it come across like a challenge or a rebuke? They just thought, why is he talking with this woman? 
They were perplexed that he would approach her. She was amazed that he would approach her, especially in the light of what she said is the the main point of her testimony. He told me everything I ever did. I am fully known by God. And yet he came to me. You see, that's her testimony. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town. Let's stop right there. Why is it important to note leaving her water jar? It's because this is the woman who had always thought in the literal, the here and now, the material for everything Jesus was saying, trying to draw her to a deeper spiritual truth. He's trying to get her beyond the, I could give you this blessing by giving you water so you don't have to come back here all the time to the well. She keeps saying, oh, I, how, how can you give me water? You don't have a bucket. That's a literal understanding. Give me this water so I don't have to come back to this well. That, that'll help me out here and now, right? Jesus is helping her in a far deeper way than that. And she gets it here because she's so excited that she has met the Messiah himself. And he came to her even though he knew everything she ever did. And she's so excited she forgets. Leaves her bucket at the well and runs back. She doesn't care if she'll have to come back later to get water for dinner. Her greatest excitement is to go back and tell everybody. Note, note that. She was having to come out to the well by herself. It's very likely that the women in town would come together for water for supper. They just had kind of a, a schedule, a rhythm of life. Why is she coming by herself? It's because the town knows everything she ever did. I mean, not literally every single little thing. They know the big issues of her life. They know about her uh, having five husbands and the one she has now is not her own. They know her and they want to associate with her. She has to come out by herself. She's going back to that same town and she's telling everybody, everybody who knows her. He told me everything I ever did. And there's certain things that we can deduce from this that I think we can be sure, sure about. She did not go back and tell the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, and he approves of it. What? I mean, stop and think about it. She can't have said that. The town would have said, he must be a real jerk. We know how many people you've heard in this town. We know the marriages that you have destroyed. We don't know what, exactly what it meant that she had uh, five husbands and the one she has now is not her own. It could be all sorts of different things. It could be that she was married five times. The one that's least likely is that she was an innocent widow every time. The townspeople would have rallied around her for that. But at, at least we know now she's living with a, a husband who's not her own. Either she's having an affair with somebody who's married to somebody else or she stole a husband from somebody else to marry him. And she may have done that repeatedly before. Jesus is indicting her for the immorality of her life and the townspeople know it. And she goes back and says, he told me everything I ever did. She can't have said. And he proves. Nor could she say, he told me everything I ever did. And he still forgives me. He comes to me. He talks to me. He accepts me. And he says, it doesn't matter if I keep doing this. And that's kind of shocking, too. 
Now, that one we kind of get on, uh, uh, on a current, a contemporary level. 20, 30 years ago, it's, it's 30 years at least now, uh, a movement called the Sonship Movement uh, arose, and the church is a wonderful uh, ministry that addressed a real need. A lot of us in church would, were behaving, were thinking as though we were adopted. Uh, we were forgetting we were adopted in God's family. We were thinking like the orphans who just lived with the family, lived with God's family. And the way we would draw close to God is to do well enough to impress him. And the Sonship Movement, Jack Miller, who founded it, pointed out how we don't have to live like that. Because of the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we are adopted as his children. He already loves and accepts us. But many did take that principle and that move it. We called it sonship on steroids. When it's like, God loves me unconditionally. And it's not just he knows everything I ever did and still shows grace to me. The implication is it doesn't matter what I do. Jesus could not have said to her, it would not have impressed the town if she told the town, he told me everything I ever did and he forgives me and he says it's okay for me to keep living this way. That last part just doesn't go down well. The touch of Christ in her life would be transforming. The reason it was impressive to the townspeople who had already rejected her, already ostracized her, already been hurt by her or had friends that were hurt by her, they saw something different in her. They saw the conviction of sin in her life. With the gracious touch of Jesus Christ, they would change her and transform her so that she'd become a different person, a new creature. And they, were, they wondered, they were fascinated. Many believed because of what she said in Jesus. It says, picking up in verse 39, the second uh, half of this. Oh, she said, uh, the NIV translates, could this be the Christ? If you render the Greek more directly, and a few translations have it this way, it's, is this not the Christ? You see, could this be the Christ means she's still wondering. Is this not the Christ means she already knows he is. And she's presenting it to them. Don't you see it too? That's her testimony. He knows everything I ever did. He loves and accepts me, and he is changing me. I want to to live for him. I'm responding in love for him the way he loves me, so that I want to please him. And I'm telling you because I have hurt you. Townspeople, I I know the kind of woman I've been. I'm convicted of my sin, and I've been changed by this, this Messiah, this Christ. Is he not the Christ? They, many believe because of her testimony. That's what verse 39 says. It goes on to say, it, well, it repeats what the woman's testimony is. He told me everything I ever did. And then verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. A Jew in Samaritan ter- territory. It's just oozing of the grace of God. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. The woman could say, I'm fully known. He told me everything I ever did. And her witness is, 
to others. And he's, he's gracious. And he loves us. He's the Savior. And they respond and say, we see in you conviction of sin, a change of life. Many believed and then others came out. They, they all came out to see Jesus. They persuaded Jesus to stay two days. And many more believed because they met directly with Jesus. I ask you, have you ever had anything like this experience with God? Have you had that experience where God is touching a nerve in your life that you know is deep, that you know is wrong? And you want to scramble away. You want to evade. But when you finally experience his touch, instead of it hurting it is healing because it's a gracious touch. It's a loving touch and it's a transforming touch. It's a restoring touch. Have you, have you had anything like that? If you haven't, I would ask you to, to come nearer to Christ, nearer to his word, because this is the work of God in our lives. And I go all the way back into my uh, early years in faith, in my, in my the teenage years, what God was putting his finger on me for was being a hypocrite. I shared earlier in an earlier message how uh, I wanted to belong to this uh, group of, of teenagers that really loved the Lord and they accepted me and that drew me in. It was love manifest where it was least expected. As a ninth grader, I was accepted by these high schoolers and I began to fake it with them. But God began to turn the screws on me like Jesus saying, go and get your husband. The way he did it for me was at a seminar, we were going to learn how to share our faith. And the leader called me up as the example. And as soon as he called me up, I got disturbed inside. I thought, does he see through me? Does he see that I'm faking it? Does he want to to show how to share the gospel with me because he knows I need it? And I was uncomfortable up there. It was the four spiritual laws. He's just showing how to go through the book. And as he was asked the questions about, you know, make the point that sin separates us from God. I was, I was thinking these thoughts in my life of, does he see my sin? Does, does he know? I had a veil in front. My, my sin was hypocrisy. And I wanted to be included because I knew the answers. I knew how to act. I knew uh, what to say. And I thought I could impress. And they would accept me. And I was afraid they were seeing through me and I was being exposed. And I hated it. And he came to that last question. And I didn't have my composure with me. He said, would you like to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord? And the truth just welled up within me. I said, no. I wasn't ready. I was wrestling. I was like the, the worm on the hook wriggling and everybody laughed and he said you're going to get this answer sometimes he said here's what to do and he went back and said is it because you have a hard time admitting your sin but so sin separates us from god and next is it uh are the things about jesus that you really don't yet believe are true that uh, he's the son of god who gave his life for sins do you have questions about that we can discuss those well, then I kind of gathered myself said, no, no, I understand that, I understand that. He came back and he said, would you like to receive Jesus as your Savior, Lord? And I just play acting, I said, yes. Oh, halo. And I showed him how to do it. And then I thought, it's over. And he said, now, 
after he had finished his training and showing everybody how to do it, what we're going to do is we're going to go over to Harry's High School and we're going to share the gospel with the boarding students there. I wanted to be included in this group. I didn't want to be going over there and going through this silly booklet and put, I just about died. It's like God was just screwing that screw into my heart and saying, you hypocrite, you hypocrite, you hypocrite, you hypocrite. And my oldest brother, my older brother, my oldest brother is off in college. My older brother, Phil, is a senior in high school. He said, I wish we could, but we can't. We've got to get back to youth group. What a wonderful spiritual excuse. And I said, oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. We've got to get back to youth group. I've just love to go and share my faith. And I left. But God had done his damaging work in my soul. Have you ever experienced anything like this? It's not going to be the same. It's not going to be exactly like there's a dynamic where God is saying, go and get your husband and come back. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, what you say is exactly right. That's true. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the one you have now is not your own. When the Holy Spirit is turning the screws on you, he's doing it out of love and grace and mercy. And when you realize you're fully known by God and you finally give in, it was a couple of weeks later that I gave in. It wasn't even the subject of the class. I wasn't put on the spot except by the Holy Spirit. And I just prayed, Lord, a real Christian wouldn't be, you know, a hypocrite like this, wouldn't be wrestling with you like this. I knew my childhood, eight-year-old profession of faith, and I believe now that it was genuine, that I'd wavered and God was drawing me back. But I prayed, Lord, I do commit my life to you. Never before I receive you as my Lord and Savior. In, in the 70s jargon, it was actually the late 60s, but I've always said 70s jargon. It became it's just real common. Make you number one in my life. I want to make you number one in my life. Just wholehearted commit to Christ. Then I found a peace with God that I hadn't known before. Instead of wrestling against him, he accepted me. Instead of being an outsider trying to fake my way in, I belonged to the family. I was included in the fellowship. And as I opened up and shared with others, I had been faking it. Instead of ridiculing me, they embraced me. They celebrated the work of God in my life. That was wonderful. Now, when you become a baby Christian, you're just a baby Christian. You do have to grow up. And God has brought me through all sorts of different experiences, ups and downs. There are other times that God would be you know, turning the screws and, and saying, hmm, hmm, we need to deal uh, with this. So it's not just once and for all. It's the Lord chastens those he loves. So when we begin to, to you know, either it's an abiding sin that we've never dealt with, that he begins to zero in on because he wants to draw us closer to himself. This experience will happen different ways over and over again. Just as, as your preacher, every time I've started thinking, I can do this. I love to preach. I can, I can do this job. I can, I can preach Every time God can pull the plug and somebody will come along and say, your preaching's not connecting 
with me. I just don't get it. You know, when you get a big head, it's a bigger target. So don't get a big head about it. As you grow up as Christians, we go from fullness of soul that can go right to our heads, and we're right and everybody else is wrong, to the graciousness of, he told me everything I ever did. If he can be gracious to me, he can be gracious to you. Let me have a gracious touch with you. See, when we gather for Thanksgiving, we don't only thank God for his here and now blessings, but the blessing that he gave us in the Lord Jesus Christ is that we are fully known by God. Nothing's hidden, but we're fully loved by God. And he proves it in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins on the cross, to rise again from the dead, and to share that eternal life with us. If you've had blessing after blessing in life, and that's all you thank God for, in many ways I feel sorry for you, because all those blessings you're thankful for will pass as we get older. I haven't met anybody that's escaped it yet. But if you have a foundation of thanksgiving, that God knows you and loves you, and has accepted you by his grace, and he sets before you eternal life, whatever the up and down is in this life, you have a foundation that cannot be taken away of a glorious future in store, and you experience it in measure now, even in the peace that you have in tribulation and trouble. Tonight, I expect that we're going to hear testimonies of this is how God has blessed. Praise God for that. And this is how God has allowed suffering into my life. But God is faithful still, and I praise him for that. I want to close with just a couple of readings from Martin Lloyd-Jones' uh, Living Water. It's interesting in, in reading this that uh, you know, he lived years, decades ago, mid-20th mid century. Uh, and, yeah, the issues are the same. Human nature's the same. He said, uh, I've pointed out that when our Lord begins to deal with us, he does disturb us. There is no greater disturbing power in the universe than the power of the love of Christ. That, quote, kind but searching glance, end quote. I had to look that up. That's a reference to an old hymn that I don't know, but I love the phrase, his kind but searching Glance. I've called it the screws of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Before which all things are naked and opened. He searches us for our own good, but it is painful. So we evade it by taking up other issues. Have we, we have seen how the woman of Samaria did it, but what about us? Among the most common of all questions at the present time, mid-20th century, are questions about apartheid in South Africa. It is honorable to talk about that, is it not? You see, in denouncing somebody else, you are shielding yourself. While you are denouncing these people or friends in America or somewhere else, he was in London, so he, they, they could denounce us over here in America, uh, or somewhere else over this racial problem, you are full of righteous indignation. We're calling it now virtue signaling. Isn't it common now in our day and time? That is very clever. 
but you're just evading the problem of your own life, the running sore of your own soul. And then later I was thinking, oh great, in this passage I'm coming down on the, the central point is the conviction of sin and God's grace to, grace to us. Yes, it's Thanksgiving, but it's an uncomfortable message on Thanksgiving, isn't it? And then Lloyd Jones, in one of the latter sermons in, in, on this passage, he ties it to Thanksgiving himself. He said, If I were asked to say what, in my opinion, is most lacking in the life of the Christian church at the present time, and still is at our present time, without any hesitation, I would answer that it is just this a conviction of sin, a sense of our unworthiness, and the sense of the glory of God. These are things that are, he says, are lacking. We're too healthy. We're too satisfied. We're too pleased with ourselves. When we contrast the state of the church today with what we read of in past ages, what strikes us immediately is that there is an absence of humility and absence of repentance. This, of course, is vital. And if we are to know individual or general revival, we must start here. Let me give you one example of how this works out. It is harvest thanksgiving. The same occasion in England, maybe separate occasion, you know, separate history behind it. Harvest Thanksgiving. Is the world interested in such times? Why doesn't the world thank God? Why do we not always realize our indebtedness to him? The answer of the New Testament is that this is all due to the fact that we have never realized the truth about ourselves and the truth about God. And he goes on to explain conviction of sin. We don't want to admit it, so we are not grateful to God who gave us life and everything else. But when we come to conviction of sin, we discover that we're fully known, yes, fully exposed, but we're also fully loved by the gracious Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit to change and turn from our sin, to be new creatures, to follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us thanksgiving from first to last in the blessings and in the curses. Let us be able to say with Paul that we know the secret of contentment, whether well-fed or hungry, whether healthy or sick. Let us know the secret of contentment because we know the Lord Jesus Christ and your gracious touch in our lives. You are with us in the times of trouble and you'll take us through all the way to glory. And every day that you give us here in this life, you give us a purpose to shine the light of this gospel to those who live in a dark and fearful world, fearing that if we're ever truly known, we'll be rejected. And we can say, no, the God who knows everything yet sent the Lord Jesus to pay the penalty of sin. Come to him. Find forgiveness. Find purpose for living. And find a future that is glorious. We pray this in his name. Amen.